Money FM 89.3, best of prime time. Market View on Money FM 89.3. You're listening to Money FM 89.3. I'm Chua Tian Tian with your market view. Now, to get you through the midweek hump, why not let's talk about something lighter today? How about football? Since we're in the midst of the Premier League season, well, Manchester United received quite the attention among investors over the past week after world's richest man Elon Musk joked about buying the club. What we know now is that British billionaire Jim Ratcliffe has expressed an interest in buying United, but whoever the buyer may be, the Manchester United supporters. Trust that any new owner of the club must be willing to invest heavily to restore their former glory. We'll stop there with menu for just a moment. But speaking of investments, it seems like there's much to look forward to in the football industry. Analysts say interest in football around the world continues to grow, with spending back to pre-COVID levels. So let's find out more from James Walton, Deloitte Southeast Asia Sports Business Group leader, who is with us now on the line. Hi, James. Hi. Good evening. Hi, James. I must admit that I'm not a football fan, so I'm going to rely on you for those details. When you mentioned that spending, or when you told us that spending is back to pre-pandemic levels, does that refer to revenue or consumer spending on football? And if so, how much did the European football industry grow over the past year in terms of revenue? So when we talk about football, we generally talk about three revenue streams. One is broadcasting,、mm. which is basically media rights,、uh, the money clubs get for being on TV. Uh, the commercial, which is their sponsorship deals as well as merchandise, and then their match day revenues, which is ticket sales and, and hospitality. And so, what we're really seeing、uh, for the last year for 2021 is a further increase in、uh, in revenues. But it's a bit of a misnomer because one of the things, if we think back to the beginning of the pandemic, for all of the major European leagues, with the exception of the German Bundesliga, the season got suspended. And actually finished in the next financial year. So what happened as a result is that some of the TV payouts and some of the money that would usually have come in 2020 got delayed until 2021. So the result is some of the leagues are showing a little bit of an artificial bump as a result of some of the broadcast revenues falling into 2021. But it is still a positive picture on the whole for most of Europe. Hmm. So, in real terms,、uh, meaning adjusting for that differences in when the revenue comes in, whether it's twenty twenty, twenty twenty one, over the past year, are we seeing healthy growth? You mentioned that the picture is quite positive here. Yeah, we're seeing healthy growth because the other thing to bear in mind with the twenty twenty one numbers is that there was effectively no match day revenue because、mm. the stadiums were empty; there were no fans,、uh, and so the fact that most of the leagues are still, most of the major leagues are still showing a revenue growth. Yes, there is the offset of the increased broadcast revenue, but that is in the face of having no match day revenue and, in many cases, reduced commercial revenue as well. So it still shows that the trajectory, the direction, is still very firmly upwards.、Mm. And James, I must pose this question to you as well: Which are the leagues or the clubs contributing to the strong performance, and why? Well, as always, it's led by the English Premier League,、mm. um, and this is largely because of the, the the sheer value of the broadcast deals, the TV rights they sell around the world, particularly internationally here in Asia and in the US. They are absolutely dominant in that space, and it really puts everybody else on a on a second footing. Syria has in Italy has rebounded a little bit in the last couple of years, but、mm. La Liga in Spain, as we're seeing with some of the trouble that Barcelona is having, continues to be a, a league that is. Perhaps not doing as well as it could be.
Mm. And James, the theme of polarization, I understand, has been present in European football for many years already. But has that been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic? And what are the implications then? Oh, it absolutely has, because um, in those situations where match day revenues for smaller clubs, if you look at the championship in in England and some of the leagues where the broadcast TV deals is not such a big percentage of their revenues, they're much more reliant on ticket sales and mm. hospitality and match day revenues. So the absence of fans from the stadium for those smaller clubs, smaller leagues, was was really financially a, a, a massive loss for them. And so it has exacerbated. And what we've seen in the last couple of months is a lot of transfer activity happening. But a lot of that activity is really that the, the rich have got richer, the poor mm. have got a little bit poorer. And what we're seeing is big clubs exploiting the polarization that you mentioned to now take the better players again away from the smaller clubs using the financial muscle. Mm. And in that case, how can football leagues, especially the smaller clubs, as you mentioned, close this gap as they recover from the trust of the pandemic? It's a difficult one because the Premier League, for example, they're in a little bit of a flywheel now because what happens in, is that the more that they that they get broadcast revenues in, they use that money to then further boost the league, to bring in better players. And when they bring in better players, the next time the deal is negotiated, they have a stronger bargaining position because they have mm. the biggest clubs and, and the best players. So it, it, it becomes a virtuous cycle for them and a vicious cycle for, for everyone else. But what we have seen is that Germany, for example, the Bundesliga, along with the Premier League, is the only league that has consistently shown an operating profit across the league in the last five years. And the reason is because they run their clubs in a sustainable manner. They are sensible about their financial operating models and their club ownership models, which allows them to be sustainable. And I think that is the way to, to go. The only thing, if a league really wanted to go out there and try to catch up with the Premier League, they would have to do it by getting higher broadcasting revenues. And the only way you're going to do that is to get into the Asia markets and to get into the U.S. market and increase your slice of that of that pie by how you market. Mm, but how easy is it, James, to enter into the broadcasting market to be able to get a slice of that pie in Asia, perhaps? Well, honestly, it's difficult because we all have uh, only so much time we can we can watch mm. TV, and and they're not just competing against other football leagues; they're also competing against. Formula One and and ATP tennis and, and NBA basketball and all the other properties that are out there. I do think there's an opportunity though for the for with the right approach in terms of how to leverage digital and how we are seeing some of the social media companies, the online companies coming in and bidding into the TV rights and forming some partnerships in that space. So I think there are opportunities for an astute league to look at how they do this. And indeed, we have already seen um, private investors coming in to look at the marketing rights, the media rights for Spain's hmm. La Liga, for Italy's Serie A, to try to see how they can can boost that. And you've got to think if private equity companies are coming in on that, then they are going to be looking at how they can grow that, that pie for themselves. Mm, if you're just tuning in, we are now speaking to James Walton, Deloitte Southeast Asia Sports Business Group leader. James, since you're talking about investments, let's look at investments in the football industry. In 2021, I understand the number of transactions happening was more than the prior two years combined. So tell us a little bit more about investments into the scene this year. How are things like in the football industry right now? 
So yeah, we've seen we've seen a lot of transactions happening, and it's been interesting because one of the patterns we're particularly seeing is this emergence of these uh, what we're calling multi-club operating models. And I think the most famous one in this regard is Manchester City, who of course the City Group also owns clubs in Melbourne, in Australia, and in and in New York, and in other places around the world. And a lot of people don't realize that actually nine of the twenty English Premier League teams are now actually part of a multi-club operating model, which basically mm. means an investor owning multiple clubs. Uh, most famously in, in Europe, we see Red Bull uh, with Salzburg in Austria and, and Leipzig in Germany and how often the players are, are moving around between those teams. So that's been a, a big thing. But we've also seen a lot of investors, particularly private equity mm. and particularly coming out of the U.S. So a few years ago, all the investors coming into football were coming out of China. And then there was a little bit of a, a crackdown uh, by the government in China looking at capital outflows. Um, and so that dried up a little bit. And now it's all coming from from the U.S. and the Middle East in particular. So last year, of course, we saw the huge deal for Saudi Arabia consortium to take over Newcastle United. Uh, right now, we've got a deal happening for AC Milan. And of course, most recently, it was Todd Bowley from the U.S. and his consortium taking over Chelsea. But what we are seeing more and more of now is it's no longer so much about the oligarchs and the mm. and the rich high net worth individuals. It's increasingly becoming about private equity um, and investment management funds looking at these clubs and looking at how they can drive a return out of them. Mm. And on that note, how do PEs and investors identify which clubs are the undervalued ones? What are the metrics that they use if you happen to be able to share with us? on yeah, there's, there's a lot of things you look at because the trouble with a football club a lot of the time is that a large amount is based on brand. Uh, mm. What makes, so for example, Chelsea um, recently, the, the, the figure largely quoted is around three billion pounds. Manchester United, when there were rumours the other day, the price being talked about was five billion pounds. What makes Man United worth five billion versus Chelsea worth three billion? Mm. Is it because technically the assets they hold are, are the players. There's definitely not two billion difference in that. <laughs> and then the other assets they, they hold is their, is their stadium. And both of their stadiums are in need of, of redevelopment. So it's not that. And a lot of it just comes down to brand and goodwill. Mm. And that's why, why Real Madrid and Barcelona, and when you think other sports, the New York Yankees in baseball, the Dallas Cowboys are often valued as the most valuable sports franchises is because of that. So for a lot of investors, you're... You're looking at the brand, but you're also looking at how much investment is needed uh, to perhaps redevelop a stadium, mm. whether or not there is a large local fan base you can tap into, i.e. is there a crowd that's going to come to your to your games already, how much investment is needed into the team in order to be uh, competitive in the near future. So there are a lot of things to look at. So when you look at a deal like Chelsea, where effectively they've got planning permission to build a new stadium they're already successful. They've been recent European champions with a strong squad. They have a very large international fan base. Of course, they're in London, which is another attraction factor. It really drives uh, that interest. But in the case of Newcastle, perhaps, it was because they were undervalued, because mm. the owner wanted to get out, because of the fact they're not in London. They're out there in Newcastle, which is perhaps further out. And because they haven't had a recent history of success, means the price ultimately was one-tenth 
of the price that, that was paid for Chelsea. Mm. And on that note, James, what is the outlook for the football industry as we enter the fourth decade of the Premier League, as we enter the 2022-23 season? Wow. Um, well, there's a lot of interesting things mm. happening. I think I think we're seeing a big boost on the women's side of the game. Mm. And we're finally seeing that women's football in, in the UK and, and other countries in Europe is becoming commercially viable. Um, that we're seeing ticketed games, fans in the stands, and we've seen some large broadcast deals and and the Premier League clubs in particular as well as the the Spanish clubs have really woken up to the opportunity here in terms of merchandise broadcast rights ticketing and the fact that this attracts a whole new fan base a whole new demographic that they perhaps haven't been able to get to I think we can expect the EPL the Premier League to continue um, as I mentioned earlier to build on that virtuous circle to bring in the best players and to compete at that top level and to remain um, the most attractive team building mm. on the history that they've got. And I think really the thing everybody's got their eyes on right now is whether or not this European Super League ever comes back to the table, seeing the financial distress that Barcelona and one or two other teams um, are in, and whether or not we see more foreign investors coming in and um, and doing what we've seen with Chelsea and Newcastle to raise the bar of again. So it's very exciting and unpredictable times, but I think the one thing we're certain of is that the last 20 years have really been the two decades of where the Premier League has risen to its ascendancy. And the feeling is that for at least the next decade, that is going to continue. Mm, And how can we as retail investors, James, also hop on the bandwagon? Are there any opportunities that we should be looking at at this time? Uh, I think think it would take a very (laughs) very diehard and devoted fan to invest in football teams. I mean, the Mm. first thing is not a lot of teams are actually listed. Mm -hmm. So when you look around Europe, you will see Manchester United, uh, Borussia Dortmund, Juventus, Roma, Ajax. There's a couple of teams, but the majority are not because they are held privately. Mm. Um, If you look at those teams... You know, the problem is we've also seen in the past teams being listed, delisted, owners diluting shares. There's a lot of things that happen. They tend not to pay very good dividend yields. In fact, Mm. if you look at all the listed teams across the top five leagues in the last couple of years, their dividend yield has been around 1%. Mm. Now, if you think about what you would get out of putting your money in a savings account (laughs) in in that time, Mm. and and never mind what you would get if you'd invested in in an Apple or a a Tesla or or a Facebook Mm. If you, so most people, when they buy shares, honestly, they buy shares because it's their club and mm-hmm. they want to own a share of their club. But if you had to pick one club out of all of Europe, perhaps to invest in, and, and, I, and, and I say this mm. very cautiously, <laughs> it would probably be Ajax uh-huh. um, in the Netherlands because of all the clubs uh, in the last 20 years, their shares have risen in value, something like 30, 35% in that time. And they consistently do maintain their value and, mm. and pay out dividends compared to all the other clubs. But even that mm-hmm. would take a, there would still probably be better things for you to spend your money on out there than a football club. Mm. And James, very finally, I, I must ask this. Let's end off by talking about Man U. Elon Musk joked about buying the club, but it seems like billionaire Jim Ratcliffe has expressed a serious interest. What's your take on that? Do you think a new owner for the Premier League club can bring it back to its former glory? Just very quickly. So the first question is whether the Glazers would even sell, which Mm. they don't seem to be in any mood to do. But Jim Ratcliffe, he's bought Sky Cycling Team. He's bought Nice in France. Mm. He's shown he can do it. But honestly, Mm. the Glazers have spent money on the pitch and it hasn't worked. That that club needs a clear out and new ownership may be the right way to do it. But realistically, no matter which owners come in, 
it's going to be three to five years until they can find themselves in the right path again. Mm, certainly. Thank you very much, James. That was James Walton, Deloitte Southeast Asia's sports business group leader. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A W E D I O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.